Greetings, everyone. Although some of us have been uh, sitting for a few minutes, we'll begin our uh, more shared, uh, focused uh, five minutes of sitting now. So I'll invite the bell and allow yourself to uh, enter a space of, of intention and a bit of silence and stillness and uprightness, holding a, the space for us all, even though we don't see each other, but knowing that there are a number of people out there sitting with you and people for whom you are sitting now.
are first of the robe. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction, wearing the universal teaching. I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction, wearing the universal teaching. I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction, wearing the universal teaching. I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Each week, more and more, I appreciate the small ways in which we hold these few forms uh, as if it's um, a way that it continues to knit our practice and our lives and our hearts and minds together when we're so far away at, at times. Uh, certainly in times like this when we don't really see each other, to sit together just for a few moments, to repeat these verses uh, which have echoed from centuries and come forward into these translations which have some meaning for us, gives us a way to hold together what in some ways feels like it can very easily fall apart these days. So I appreciate this as we come together and arrive in this really remarkable um, opportunity that we have to be together despite our distances. Like you, um, many of you I, I've heard from, I'm thinking about uh, truth these days. And I don't mean just philosophical truth with a big T. I mean also everyday practical honesty and truth. Uh, because we we wonder now in a very practical way in every day, uh, are we hearing the truth? Is what we see, hear, and receive uh, distorted in some way? Um, it's, it's so common and yet I think it might be useful for us to return to the foundations of our practice, which in, in Zen practice are the precepts, and look at a few things that are said about telling the truth and not lying, and how that's it's very central uh, in our practice. <clears throat> There's a way in which in our study of the precepts at Apamado, we speak about an, a practice that we take up, a vow that we might make not to tell lies, nor practice believing the fantasies of authority. For those of you that might be unfamiliar with the Buddhist precepts, they're really an expression of universal um, morality. 
uh, ethical co uh, constructs. And there are five that are quite universal that you see in almost every wisdom tradition. Don't lie, don't steal, don't misuse sexuality or intoxicants, um, don't harm other people, uh, don't kill. So these are foundational uh, and they're spoken about often in that prohibitory way, don't do certain things, but there, there are other ways to think about it which we can open up. And today I just wanted to focus on this one about classically not lying, but the way that I just spoke about it, that the, the precept, the ethical practice is not to tell lies, nor to practice believing the fantasies of authority. It seems so uh, crucial these days. And yet this is something that we've carried forward for a long time. There's an inspirational side to this, uh, which we sometimes in our study program speak about as um, there is no need to hide the truth. From a practice point of view, from the point of view of someone who's committed to awakening, who's committed to, through the Bodhisattva vow, the awakening and liberation of others. There's no need to hide the truth. That is what we start with. Remember when we have our series of verses and chants that we do in our liturgy, we start with repentance or confession. Uh, we say, I now fully avow, I now make full confession. This is my life. This is the truth of where I stand and who I am. So if we're to enter a deep practice of realization of the truth, of awakening, of freedom from unnecessary suffering, then we're going to have to pay attention to what's most truthful. So there's no need to hide the truth. Of course, many people say, unless there is, unless there is some reason, and we see around us many people arguing for reasons to hide or distort the truth. I think that the inspirational aspect of the precept about honesty, truth-telling, not lying, and when it's said in this way, there's no need to hide the truth, because it's a way in which we come to trust reality, to trust the universe completely. The trust that, that big mind and big heart, our wakefulness is on our side. That doesn't mean we always get what we want or things don't necessarily go our way, but it doesn't help to try to turn away or to distort or to deceive others. So the inspirational um, flavor or color or fragrance of this precept is there's no need to hide the truth. The prohibition, which we've already mentioned, is to not lie or to deceive others. To deceive, not just falsify information, but not to deceive, not to manipulate. In some ways, not to intoxicate others with rhetoric. Or not to be seductive, to entice people. And you see that now actually the prohibition 
to not only not lie but not deceive others calls in some of the other precepts. You might think that the uh, precept about not intoxicating might mean don't drink or do drugs, but it has to do with some of the things that are even more powerfully intoxicating at times, which are words, ideas, rhetoric, positions we take, and we see this being used. The one that says don't misuse sexuality or to act seductively. And how seductive are some of the ways in which people are calling to each other uh, socially, politically, a lot of ways. So it's, a, it's not just not lying, but also not deceiving. There's no need to hide the truth. Please don't lie or deceive other people. The aspiration, right alongside this inspiration and the prohibition, is to see and act in accordance with what, what is. This is intimacy and an appropriate response. This is our teachings on the awakened mind is intimacy with all things, meeting things just as they are. Not trying to lean in too deeply or push away or distort, but to actually meet things and then we know how to respond, to see and act in accordance with what is. The, the word intimacy in Zen is actually another, in some ways, word for awakening enlightenment, actually being with the moment, with immediacy and clarity, with wakefulness. There's no need to hide the truth. Please don't lie or deceive others. Our aspiration is to see and be in accordance with what is. So the key is honesty and integrity. Honesty and integrity a quality of character that's so crucial, but also a quality of our practice. And the vow in everyday practice would be I take up the way of speaking truthfully. I take up the way of speaking truthfully. So these are just ways to kind of open up and think about this idea of, of truth. I also wanted, in, by example, to talk a little bit about my teachers, or a few of my teachers, and what they showed me about this question, about this precept about truth. So I want to speak just very briefly, some reflections on John Gladfelter, who was my psychotherapy mentor uh, for uh, 35 years or so. Uh, Blanche Hartman, who was my Zen teacher from um, the early mid-90s until her passing. And then Joko Beck, who I spent not so much time with, but uh, some time, and through Peg, of course, uh, had an intimacy that was, that was wonderful. Their way of teaching was really to be more of a clear mirror rather than directing or describing or, or like telling me what to do. None of them were dogmatic or aloof, but in some ways plainly human, but completely devoted to the truth. They were ordinary in many ways, if you met them and spent time with them, in a way that was a very um, spare or pared down there was nothing extra. 
but there was definitely nothing missing. I would say that um, they were, maybe you would say, fierce mirrors. And, and I use that, that term because of a particular potency in the way that they would reflect me and our, our time together. But when, when I think of someone as fierce, I usually, you know, conjure up images of someone being harsh or sharp or aggressive. We see this around us all the time these days. But this is not the fierceness that I experienced with any of these teachers. Each was unique in their own embodiment, in particular in their expression of their view of practice, uh, their understanding of life or the great matter. But their fierceness was more like, you know, like the high definition monitors. Maybe you're looking at one right now or our televisions, which show in uncanny detail all the features of a face or a flower or the sky or the ocean. And some of us are startled by that clarity and also sort of dismayed when it's ourselves we're looking at. But in this kind of mirror, we're spared nothing. Everything is revealed in exquisite clarity, precisely as it is. And this was their fierceness. I say was because each of them has dropped their body by this time. None of them reflected back a particularly distorted view, in my experience, or a self-interested or filtered response. And they certainly didn't provide some varnished image of themselves or me. They were clear and penetrating when they were kindly and even powerfully guiding me. They were uh, unrelenting, and I say that with a smile, which means they were get dedicated to their students and to their vows. That's what was unrelenting. And completely on the side of freedom, without pushing a personal agenda or trying to convince me of anything. They had nothing to sell, but everything to offer. And their way was to reveal to me who I was, what I was doing, how I was doing it, and some of the impact of my way of being and acting in the world that, that they could see. And in doing so, my, my understanding over time was to realize that all of them in their own way were helping me have an option a new option that in some ways I didn't even realize I was missing. To live from a place of more wakeful choice rather than from old habits of automatic conditioning, patterns that were simply habitual. Continually seeing more clearly, continuing softening the self-centered dream which we chant at the end. And if they could offer me more options for choice by their reflection. They had done their job. Then it was up to me.
what choices I would make, how I'd live my life. And as I thought about this and how people often speak about such teachers, they think they talk about the capacity to reflect back their students' uh, true nature with a capital T and a capital N, their true nature. But something about this, of course, resonated, but this, this common way of speaking and thinking about transformation and wakefulness seemed more and more uncomfortable to me. It didn't quite fit the experience I had with them because using these capital letters and speaking about true nature as if it was a thing which we could possess, which also means you could somehow lose it, wasn't exactly true. And this way, the uh, true nature becomes nominalized, it becomes made into a thing which you could have or you could fail to get, or if you had it, you could lose it. But in the flux of contingent, impermanent, interdependent experience that the Buddha revealed to be the nature of things, and maybe it, it's more to the point to talk about the truth of the matter rather than one's true nature. For example, John, who was a clinical psychologist and a, a master psychotherapist, he never spoke about enlightenment or even spirituality really directly with me. But his way of being with us as students continually reflected back to us our basic sanity, our deepest goodness, not our flaws or our faults. When we were doing supervision, we would bring a, back then, a cassette tape or something, a recording of a session. And, and he said, play some pieces where you thought you did a great job, where you thought you were on. That's what we would start with. Then he would say, if you have questions, play some of those pieces and we'll, we'll talk about them. But he never listened to it and criticized or critiqued. He once said in response to a student arguing for their deficits and faults, in the kindest and most direct but powerful way, he said, I will not make you not okay. I won't do it. And this was the truth of the matter for him. Our basic goodness was what he saw, what he hoped to illuminate and encourage. And that was the truth of the matter. Blanche was like a tough grandmother, always present for everything, working harder and longer than anyone else, not to prove anything, but to demonstrate the embodiment of generosity and commitment. I think she didn't have a choice. We could see and feel her vows in action, full of joyful energy and devotion, showing us wholeheartedly, showing us what the truth of the matter was for her. Joko, who I spent less time with, but who had a great impact on me, you know, she didn't actually use the word Buddha very much. She substituted life as it is. And in our chant, we say each moment, life as it is. So I think dropping true nature, like she dropped Buddha, and speaking of the truth of the matter, might be more direct. <laughs>
it might be more truthful. And for her, this was more, more truthful, more open, more full of potential, more alive. As I said, they were all ordinary and yet profound. For example, when asked about the everyday suffering caused by self-critical mind, Joko said, oh, you'll probably always have those thoughts. They just won't be so interesting. This, this is the truth of the matter. You'll always be who you are. And self-criticism seems to be part of being a human with reflective consciousness. It's the, it's the shadow side of wisdom and discernment. However, through practice, these kinds of contracted or distorted thoughts soften and recede from the center of our hearts and our mind. The truth of the matter is not some new thing we learn or acquire or attain, but it's instead it's a dropping away of what is habitual rather than what's immediate and true. There's no true nature to discover somewhere in there, hidden. Just the nature of everything in which we rest begins to unfold. The unrelenting, ever-changing flux of contingent experience, this is intimacy, this cipher for awakening. It frustrated me that I could never catch up with John. I would read and try to know as much as him, but when I met him, I was in my 20s. So I was full of ambition and grasping and desire. And he wasn't interested in competing or being better. He just followed his way, his practice, which seemed like to me, weirdly, like he was standing still, like he wasn't moving. But why couldn't I catch him? I asked him once if he had a philosophy of his work and he surprised me by saying, uh, yeah, Expect nothing, appreciate everything. Expect nothing, appreciate everything. This was a psychotherapist. And I realized he was a Zen master in hiding, in a, in a way, by my, my definition anyway. The truth of the matter was that there was nowhere to go and nothing to attain. And yet, and, and yet you offer yourself wholeheartedly to it, which is what Blanche would say. She would always bristle when I tried to help her, be her helper. When we were in, in Japan and I would try to carry her bags on the train, she would always be grumpy and try to take them back, but she didn't want to feel that she was weak or too old. But she, she relented and she made it clear that she was capable and always ready, but she was willing to let me support her. Another important teaching, ready capable, willing. This was the truth of the matter for her. And when Joko was near the end of her life, um, Peg and I heard stories at her memorial service about her young assistant who came to see her when she was quite ill. And he surprisingly, she, he immediately uh, heard her asking what she could do for him. What else could she do? This, this had been her whole orientation as a teacher, offering herself completely right to the end. And she would say something like, I have nothing to say. I don't know what I'm doing. I, of course, this was not the not knowing of someone who's confused or ignorant. 
But I would imagine a profound humility in the face of the great mystery of death. When I asked if she was at peace, she responded by saying, I never think about such things. It's an interesting, a strange edge. The truth of the matter was that's part of the self-centered dream. Self-evaluation, self-evaluation didn't have any meaning. When I asked about fearlessness, when I spoke to Brent Blanche, it was one of the times she was quite sharp with me. Never put me on a pedestal. Think about it, that I'm fearless. If you want to put Suzuki Roshi there, okay, but not me. Connecting with immediacy and intimacy truthfully with her students was enough. And her in their own ways, each of them kept showing me the truth of the matter. Have faith in practice, not your personal agenda for self-improvement. The last time I saw John, he was in assisted living, suffering with uh, dementia. I could tell he didn't even know who everyone was most of the time, but he was still there. His presence just didn't have much content. Stripped away down to the truth of the matter, which I could see it when he looked back at me. The last time I was with Blanche, we had dinner at a small restaurant across the street from the Zen Center in San Francisco. When we came back, I insisted on walking with her to the second floor, getting her back to her apartment. And as we walked by the Kaisando, the Founders Hall, a small place which is dedicated to the founder of the temple, Suzuki Roshi, the doors were closed, usually open in the day. She said, do you want to pay your respects? Remember, she's devotional. This is the truth for her. So she opened the doors, turned on the light. and She said, I'm not going to take off my shoes and go in, but why don't you, so you could do your bows. And so I took off my shoes, and as I stepped into the door, she grabbed my arm. And she looked at the statue of Suzuki Roshi on the altar and said, Roshi, this is one of your disciples. And she talked to him. This was the truth of the matter for her. And with tears streaming down my face, I walked in, paid my respect, did my bows. We came back, we turned off the light, closed the doors. I walked her to hall to her apartment door and gave her a little hug and a kiss on the cheek and said goodbye. And it was the last time I saw her. Peg and I also heard at Joko's memorial when her young attendant reported that Joko said to him, patting his arm one afternoon, will you come back to see me? And she was close to the end of her life. And with some incredulous nature, he said to her, well, will you still be here? And she said, no, but come back anyway. This was the truth of the matter for her. Always returned, undeterred by whatever form or ideas or hope or despair that you might feel in the face of what's going on right now, everything around you, when it doesn't seem to be any truth in what you hear. Just return to the truth of the matter in your own life and those around you so that you can remember there's no need to hide the truth. Don't lie or deceive others. Act and look in accordance with what actually is so that you can live with honesty and integrity. And please take up the way of speaking truthfully.
So let's speak in this way to each other now. If you'll raise your hand, we'll come together. <clears throat> if you have questions or something you'd like to comment on, I'd love to meet with you. Hopefully there's some people who have been hesitant. I can encourage them to raise their hand. Maybe they haven't done so, so much. Hi, John. You're muted. I'll have to unmute you there. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah, there you go. Okay, good. Um, yeah, you're talking about basic goodness uh, a while back. And that ties into a question of <clears throat> what has been happening with me since the last time. Um, so back in June, I invited my ex-wife to get together with the kids and me. And she said, no, she kind of stiff-armed me. And I felt bad about that. <clears throat> I felt angry. Uh, not sure exactly what words to use about it. But the thing was, I had trouble letting go of that feeling. And this is, you know, it was June, July, August. Uh, and so <clears throat> I felt bad about that. So during the session, that's <clears throat> after inquiry last week, <clears throat> I talked about that in a two-person breakout session with a woman there. And I talked, talked it through some, and I didn't think of myself as having made any progress. But a couple days later, all of a sudden the words came to me, I'm a decent guy. What were the words? I'm a decent guy. I'm a decent guy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that felt good. And then it made me wonder way back, I think the first time <clears throat> I was in a session with you, and you're saying the way is beyond right and wrong. I am beyond good and bad. So that makes me wonder, uh, am I beyond being decent and indecent? Depends on where you're standing. Oh. In the, in the everyday world, there are ways in which you might act in a fashion that's decent or not so decent. That's one mm -hmm. of the precepts. Okay. Uh, you're who and what you are is beyond those descriptions. The way you act, the way you think, the way you treat other people, those have consequences. And so we do make some, it's like when Suzuki Roshi said to his students, the famous line everybody's heard, you're perfect just like you are. And you could use a little improvement. Mm, yes. He's, he's talking about these both, both sides. Mm. But for you to come to realize I'm a decent guy, and that doesn't mean what she said in her uh, refusal was wrong, bad. That was her truth. That was the truth of the matter. That's what she said. So, but, and you don't have to make yourself good, bad, right, wrong by her uh, refusal. You know, oh, okay. You may feel some disappointment. You might feel some uh, railing against it a little bit, but what's wrong with that? That's part of life, you know? It's part of what goes on. Okay. But that doesn't change your basic decency, no. If you responded to her in ways that were not in accord with the precepts, then that would be different. Okay. What made me wonder about here, uh, you're talking about the basic goodness of the universe or something like that. And maybe you wonder, uh, I might expect you to say something like, <clears throat> the universe is beyond good and beyond yeah. basic goodness and so forth. Yeah. It's... It gets complicated when we use these kind of words, doesn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, because it is it is beyond those kinds of dualistic distinctions. It is what it is in a um, in our embodied immediacy in the inconceivable nature, the off off filled nature of the universe. But that gets too big. We have to come down and love each other, take care of ourselves, do our best, struggle, meet these obstacles, fail, get back up. That's how it really goes. So continue doing that. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, John. Okay. Oh, I got two for one. <laughs> Actually, three. The cat is underneath the blanket here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to give the Dharma talk on Sunday, and it was about spiritual friendship. Hmm. And it was from a book that Peg taught from a few years ago. I don't remember the exact year. Um, about spiritual friendship called um, Buddhism and friendship. And there were some wonderful ancient stories and words that the Buddha had to say about the importance of, um, you know, not just being a hermit, but being part of the Sangha and part of the community and cultivating um, spiritual friends. And so I chose that topic because I'm hearing from people in the Sangha at times, their sense of disconnection um, you know, here in Austin, things are better. Um, we're on stage three out of stage five, but um, masks are required until December 15th. And so, you know, we're just kind of feeling into what does it look like to kind of see each other maybe from far away wearing a mask. So, um, so after the talk, um, people went into breakout rooms and I had given them some questions. It's so my question for you is, one theme that came up a lot is people missing how a kind of just running into someone connection mm -hmm. can't happen in the same way. Like, oh, hi, it's good to see you. Um, but that they found actually picking up the phone or texting or, or emailing some form of communication, they found it really hard. And yet, and so I invited folks to kind of set an intention for how they, you know, now that this uh, social distancing isn't new, it, we have habits that have formed out of it. We've been doing it long enough. And so some habits are really good, like seeing you on Tuesdays at lunch. And then other habits may not be serving us as well. And so um, there was some good conversation. And so my question is, why is it that human beings these amazing, wonderful creatures can be so, at least the ones in our, in Western society, can be so reticent to reach out right now. And I, how I don't know if it's right now. I hmm. think, I think there's a, a reticence to reach out for a lot of people a lot of the time. It's, it, it never, and you know, people I'm express say it. how much they wanted it. You know, What's they people, people expressed how much they desired that connection, and yet right. it was like a you know, it's your your whole thing of barriers to love. It's like why do we 
why do we keep ourselves from what we actually need? Like the little cat is between us because that's what she needs. She's under the right. blanket because that's what she needs too. But And in the old way of being together, we got that automatically so much of the time because it was built in. Right, right. You could jump in and it was embodied. Right. The cat. the cat doesn't want to just know you're there. It wants to be next to you. Mm -hmm. And so we're nourished enough by all of that all the time that we didn't have the same, we didn't notice the same depth of need. It's like when you crimp the hose and it can't, the pressure builds up, mm -hmm. you know, and then we come back to the source, which is this huge longing. But that longing, the other side of the same thing is the terror of what it's like when someone is actually there really fully. The thing we want the most is to love and be loved. The thing that freaks us out the most is love. So okay, but that was the question. Why? Because we feel vulnerable. We're shaky little creatures. We're afraid we won't be loved back. Who knows? There's a million stories based on our conditioning. Mm, yeah. I know, I know some of yours. It doesn't matter. But I... You know, why would you? Well, we could list some of these things. But I think there's also just a basic vulnerability that goes with the thing that we both love and fear. You see it in cats all the time. You know, they'll come up and they rub against you, but then if you act toward, not like dogs, but they don't care, you know, they're happy. Yeah. But the, you, you see the ambivalence. Yeah, yeah. Of course we want it, but because of these crazy brains we have, because we have so much equipment that has to do with attachment, and that attachment process is doesn't go that great a lot of times, <laughs> that the ability just to fall into the love that we find with ease and without anxiety is kind of rare in a way. So we, we help each other. That's why we practice. We help each other. And we learn to love each other. That's why we have vows to help free each other from delusion, to help each other walk through each Dharma gate, to embody the Buddha's way. Yeah, and I didn't say this in my talk, but I know for myself, when I'm feeling lonely and disconnected, that's when I call someone. And so um, I offer that because if anyone listening hears from me, you'll know that's why. Um, it's not actually about you. It's yeah. about my needs. Okay. Hey, uh, this guy thought he would jump in since uh, he's here. Yeah. Uh, I knew I'd get two for one. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, there were a couple of things in your talk. One was that came up. Uh, first was uh, speaking the truth skillfully, which is a, a, a tricky thing. Uh, it reminds me this is September and last year at this time, I was in the hospital with my friend who was dying. Right. And when I first saw him, I mm. thought he's dying. And one of the things that came up was this question. He would, he, he asked me point blank, do you think I'm going to make it? Do you think I'm going to survive this? And my answer was, it's going to take a miracle. Miracles happen, but they're, by the nature of the word, mm -hmm. not often. But I've seen miracles happen. Mm -hmm. And I did that because I didn't want him to f feel, um, I wanted him to have hope because miracles don't happen without hope. That's just 
<laughs> the nature of the beast. And I'd seen it in my mother who had cancer and she'd be on her deathbed with only be able to speak a word or two. And then some intern would come in and do something new and she'd spring back to life and be okay for another five years. Uh, and so I knew there's, you know, the unexpected happens, but that. So you have a question about it? That truth is not, I don't know how truthful that truth was. It's one of those things where it's really in that a state of flux. Well, that's why I'm talking about the truth of the matter rather than just the truth. Right. Yeah. Here, here's, here's my formula. Tell the truth with compassion from the viewpoint or perspective of personal responsibility. Right. So you told him something that was true for you with compassion. You didn't just say, no, I think you're going to die. From the viewpoint no. of self-responsibility, which is you want to be responsible. You care about the impact. And you're talking about yourself. You're not trying to put it on somebody else. Those three pieces are really useful. And so you did something incredibly skillful. You said, miracles happen. You didn't say you're going to die. You didn't say you won't. If he pressed you and said, but what do you think? Do you think I will? You might, I might say, I'm afraid that you won't. It's not what I want. And I know it's possible, but my, there's a part of me, remember that's useful. There's a part of me that's just simply afraid that you won't. And that, that terrifies me. There's another part of me that's rooting for you every single second. Yeah. Which is true. All of it is true. That's the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is larger. That's why I'm using this phrase, but tell the truth with compassion from viewpoint of personal responsibility. Well, I appreciate that. The, the other thing I, uh, I've, I've been thinking about you in the respect to your father dying and my, you know, my father died also. Yeah. Recently. Yeah. And in my case, uh, it pretty much wipes out most all the older relatives. I've got one left. Mm -hmm. Um, you're becoming but the older relative. I'm becoming the older relative. <laughs> yes. Uh, but in the process, uh, in my immediate family, I got all the, the photo albums. And so right now I'm, mm -hmm. I am uh, scanning them all. Mm -hmm. Basically for a future, because that's the way newer folks see it. Yep. Uh, but what I've noticed is my truth about my history it was is not it's distorted because when I look at all these pictures, I see my truth coming out as from being a little kid in the in the way I looked at it. Mm -hmm. And now I see it from a different viewpoint. And, uh, um, well, this is a whole nother topic because memory, process, it's really memory is constructed. Huh? Memory is constructed. Yes. Not recorded. 
seriously. I mean, that's this is a whole other topic, but right. Right. There, there are pieces in there like those pictures. And you could put those pictures together in a mosaic and get a feel for this guy and what his background was. But then you got to stitch it all together. And that's what our brains do. Yeah. And it's been well, reconstructed in, every time. I'm in a change of flux in relationship to that truth. Great. So take it as provisional. It's like, wow, look at that. Oh, look at the face of that kid. Look who's with him. Look who's reaching out to him. Look who's not. And then just be curious. If you're not sure, remember, always go to curiosity. Yeah. Not certainty. <laughs> I'm never certain about it. <laughs> Sometimes we go to uncertainty, which is different than curiosity. Ah, uh, right. It's like John was talking about beyond good and evil, beyond certain and uncertain. Step into curiosity. I'll, yes, do my best. <laughs> same with, same with death, by the way. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's wonderful to see you both and the cat. <laughs>Starting my video. There we go. There you go. It's good to see you there in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> in the backdrop. Um, thank you for sharing your lineage of teachers and also uh, the very grounded, calm way of confessing how you come to truth. That's huh. exactly what I needed today. <laughs> oh, good. good. Well, it's an That's ongoing practice. Yeah, well, I could use some coaching, thank you. Last night I gave my attention to a documentary on PBS about uh, conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. And uh, an acquaintance that I've known in Austin since 1990, uh, we did editing at community television, uh, me for meditation and spiritual content and him for the other stuff. And um, I got scared after that, that I live in a world that has so much power given to fear and promoting fear mm -hmm. and selling fear and trading in fear, doubt and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And probably in 1991, I did a workshop where I just came to terms for myself that I would choose faith, hope and love as my ground. and. Um, that wasn't yeah. always a stable ground. <laughs> it wiggles a lot. Yeah, but it was your, the vow that you put at the center of things. That's right. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy. I'm sure most of my friends would say, um, well, that's what you say it is, but we see you practicing other things. And that's how they become my friends. So I get curious and learn from what they see. Sure. And I heard you inviting that from your teachers and from your Sangha, yeah. from your life experience. It's an orienting principle that you hold to. It's not about, it's a firm truth against some other things that are untrue. It's an orienting principle that's like the North Star that helps guide you. Nice, um, nice intervention because that's exactly what I noticed is I want it to be the weapon of control that prevents me from ever being subject to fear mongering. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> this, 
Ed, this is why I gave the talk I did today. Because of how frightened I am and how much I see all the things that you just said. I didn't want to make it explicitly political because that's not really my, my job. No, this isn't but, political. But it's I gave a, a talk on truth and speaking the truth and, and the various aspects of what it means to be with people who have integrity and how we can help each other because those are models of how we could be. Uh, because right now it's terrifying, especially with the way technology is, how things can be presented as if they are true and you can't tell. My difficulty is I trained as a skeptic, as an engineer, as a scientist, and I can tell it's that I don't know what to do to help when I see yeah. fallacies promoted as truth. And um, so I go and I pray, I sit in silence. I, in 2016, I engaged in dialogue with others that were being led by faults. And they would say, well, you're just arrogant. <laughs> so I, I'm not looking for a cure. I'm just telling you that I got scared. And when yeah. I listened to you today, I got grounded. Thank you, that's the point. And that's community for me, and I really appreciate it. Right. Thank you. Thank you. You really got the point then, because that's what it is. It, be the truth. You don't try to fix anybody. If someone wants your opinion and invites a dialogue, that's one thing. But one of my teachers used to say, <clears throat> uh, the, the more we can abandon our missionary zeal, the less chance we have of being eaten by cannibals. Uh, I'll use that for a day or two. <laughs> what is eating me? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I think we might have a little extra time, another minute or two. I'm always appreciative of behind the the beautiful image of Appamata there, uh, Jessica or Kim is helping manage all of this so well for us. Thank you. Hi there. Hi. Oh, and before we begin to talk, I wanted to offer an apology, not just to you, to everyone. Last time I put my papers on the computer, made all that terrible noise. I didn't realize I was doing it. I had my poem there. So it was me and Mary Oliver wrestling in the bushes. So sorry about that. You're a good pair. Yeah. <laughs> this was a very timely talk for me as well. But before I tell you that, I wanted to also tell you how much I love that you um, took away your screens and opened up the beauty behind you. Yeah, I, I shifted my angle. And... Yes. Mm -hmm. I I've, I've found that lovely. Anyway, you like the, you like the end so it's wild, huh? <laughs> yeah. The statement you made today when you were talking about the truth of the matter that um, your teacher John said to the person, I will not make you not okay. Mm -hmm. Somehow that just, whew, that really, it, it, it kind of pierced me. Me too. And, and I just kept thinking of the way I was brought up, which was to point out what wasn't correct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, 
I know that in my teaching, I sometimes did that. And sometimes raising kids, I did that. And mm -hmm. being with my spouse, I did that. And, and, you know, I've been working not to do it. But today it was just a, I don't really have a question. I just wanted to tell you how strongly that touched me. Thank you. Yeah, thank I, you. I endeavor to be his faithful student in that regard. Well, you do model that. And I, I think, and it's something that I keep with me a lot. I, I think about, about that. Yeah, good. Watching good. you. And, right, right. And just noticing when it arises and mm -hmm. let it drop as best you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Be gentle with yourself, which also means making yourself, not making yourself not okay. And that's right. That's right. Yeah. And that's something I've been really working on the last couple of years, just accepting. So thank you. Thank you. Which is a perfect invitation to our final chant where we remember the four practice principles, which is at the heart of our practice, um, where if we would like to move forward with compassion, with wakefulness with the truth of the matter to be in the moment with intimacy then we have to pay attention to each moment as it's teaching us because it becomes our teacher rather than holding on to self-centered thoughts which is a, a dreamlike quality of separation from reality and when we're caught in that we suffer and others suffer so we chant to, to end caught in the self-centered dream only suffering holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Thank you very much. We'll continue to practice the truth of the matter as best we can. And I believe, uh, Jessica has some further announcements, and I hope that you'll, some of you might get together afterwards um, and enjoy, enjoy your time together. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you, Frank. Thank you very much, Flint, and thank you everyone for your time and your attention today. Appamata's programs and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support makes a huge difference. There's a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. And as Flint mentioned, if you're interested in uh, chatting together as we um, reenact putting on our shoes on the porch, please feel free to find us at the after inquiry link on the calendar. Thank you.